Sonny Liston never knew when he was born. He probably never saw the end coming. If you want to be poetic about it, his life was like a book with no start and the last page torn out. They're still trying to work out the stuff in between. In the whole history of boxing, there cannot be a story murkier than Sonny Liston's. And there's no sport murkier than boxing. Even when Sonny was heavyweight champion of the world, one of the most famous men on the planet, the public didn't really know him. He was unloved. Unloved and unwanted. We know that. But was his life destined to pan out like it did? Was he to blame? If he wasn't, who was? We'll come to that. But it makes more sense to start at the end. This is Death of a Sports Star. It's the evening of the 5th of January, 1970, and Geraldine Liston is home from her Christmas break. When she walks through the front door, she thinks Sonny burnt his dinner because something stinks. She follows the smell up the stairs and finds Sonny's bloated corpse slumped backwards over their bed. Mrs. Liston calls Sonny's doctor and lawyer, but doesn't tell the police for two or three hours. That's mystery number one. Going by the number of milk bottles and newspapers piled up on the doorstep, the police reckon Sonny's been dead for six days now. There's no sign of forced entry or struggle, but here's what the police do find. A glass of vodka on a bedside table, a small amount of weed in Sonny's pocket, a small amount of heroin in the kitchen, but no syringes or needles. Things don't add up. The removal of Sonny's body would be funny if it wasn't so bleak. The coroners drop him down the stairs, and as they're trying to lift him into the ambulance, the stretcher tips over and drops him on the side of the road. Geraldine is heard to say, I told you he'd wind up in the gutter. But it hadn't always been inevitable. Maybe to Geraldine, maybe to Sonny, but not to everyone. So here's what we need to talk about when it comes to Sonny Liston. How he was shaped by his brutal childhood in the American South, his escape to the city, scrapes of the law, and how he found boxing. How becoming champ didn't really change anything. How he was humiliated by Cassius Clay one day and Muhammad Ali the next. The crimes, the conspiracies, how the world viewed Sonny compared to how he actually was. That last page, you'll learn a lot. Just not everything. No one knows everything about Sonny. Sonny's real name is Charles. We do know that. He's born in a shack on the outskirts of Forest City, Arkansas. There's not much to say about Forest City, except that not many people live there. Oh, and it's named after a Ku Klux Klan leader. Sonny's old man, Toby Liston, has 25 kids. 
Sonny is his 24th. He's also the 11th child of Helen Baskin's 12. There's no record of Sonny's birth. 1928, 1930 doesn't make much difference. Almost as soon as Sonny can walk, his father works him like a dog and beats him like one too. Sonny died the day he was born. That's what his future publicist, Harold Conrad, says. When Sonny is about 13, he follows his mother to St. Louis, where she's working in a factory. Sonny can't read or write and is bullied at school. So he starts sticking up diners and gas stations instead, often in a bright yellow shirt. It's like he wants to get caught. Maybe he does. In 1950, he's sentenced to five years in Missouri State Penitentiary. It's probably the best thing that ever happens to him, which says a lot about Sonny. The prison chaplain, this old fella called Father Stevens, has never seen fists so big. He calls Sonny the most perfect specimen of manhood I have ever seen. All that graft on his father's land counted for something. Father Stevens puts Sonny in the prison gym and invites some local promoters to watch him pound people. When he's released in 1952, he winds up being managed by a little firm with ties to the mob. Sonny's amateur career is short and sweet. He turns pro in September 53. His first victim is a guy called Don Smith, who is slaughtered inside the round. But Sonny's also working as an enforcer, beating up strikers and anyone else who crosses the mob. The police in St. Louis make Sonny's life hell. He can't go for a jog without being stopped and accused of running from a crime. As you can imagine, that gets Sonny's back up. One cop ends up head first in a trash can. When he breaks another cop's leg, he gets nine months in the workhouse. When Sonny gets out, the police let him know he's no longer welcome in St. Louis, just as he's never been welcome anywhere. Sonny even gets wind that his life is at risk, so he heads for Philadelphia. You know, they call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. Well, he doesn't find much love there. Sonny's contract is sold to Frankie Carbo and Blinky Palermo, a couple of mobsters who run boxing in Philadelphia and most of the rest of America. Sonny is a wrecking ball. There's this one guy called Cleveland Big Cat Williams who people think hits harder than anyone. But Sonny takes his best shots and stops him in three rounds. He makes a right mess of Willie Bezmanov. Poor old Willie's eyes are cut to ribbons. His nose is broken and one of his ears almost comes off. There are rumors Sonny can lift the front end of cars, catch birds in those big hands of his and punch the stuffing out of heavy bags. Sports writers sound terrified. It's that jab of his that scares them most. They've never seen one that could knock people out. Someone describes his hook as cold storage. But they also write about Sonny as if he's a wild animal or monster. They write of his baleful obsidian stare. 
They call him a caveman, a jungle beast, and even a gorilla. Racism was less subtle back then. People who actually know Sonny can't believe what they're reading. Apparently, he recites old comedy routines with all the different voices and sound effects. He even does high-pitched women's voices. He visits orphanages and children's hospital wards without photographers and reporters knowing. Sonny is apparently terrified of his wife. He never lays a finger on her, at least according to her. James Baldwin, the black writer and activist, writes this. He is far from stupid. And while there is a great deal of violence in him, I sensed no cruelty at all. But the media aren't interested in nuance. Not back then. It makes more sense that Sonny is simple. In 1960, Sonny is the number one contender to the champion, Floyd Patterson. That gets people flapping. Patterson's people say they don't want to give Sonny a shot because of his links to organized crime. Patterson, who's really a light heavyweight, has a suspect chin. Probably just doesn't fancy it. Would you? The press start digging up Sonny's criminal past. The joke goes that his tale of the tape should read, reach 84 inches, chest 44 inches, fist 15 inches, arrests 19. When Sonny runs into more trouble with the law in 1961 and his license is revoked, people become hysterical. The poet Ameri Baraka calls Liston the big black Negro in every white man's hallway, waiting to do him in. Some white politicians think Sonny is the wrong kind of Negro. President Kennedy advises Patterson, who is more his kind of Negro, to defend his title against someone with a better character. But it isn't just white people who think Sonny is America's worst nightmare. Some African-American leaders think Sonny is a bad example of their race, an inconvenience. They're searching for role models. They want white people to think they're civilized. They can do without a black heavyweight champion who terrifies kids and old ladies and has a rap sheet as long as his arms. But by 1962, Patterson has run out of challenges and most people don't care who he fights anyway. They're boxers, not saints. When Patterson does finally agree to fight, President Kennedy calls him and he says, it would not be in the Negro's best interests if Liston won. No pressure, Floyd. So at Chicago's Comiskey Park, Patterson lasts two minutes and six seconds. That's the first time a heavyweight world title fight has ended in the first round. The New York Times called it the knight in shining armor, battling the forces of evil. And the forces of evil have won. When he hears the result, James Baldwin, the writer we mentioned earlier, heads to a bar to mourn the very possible end of boxing. He hasn't met Sonny yet. During the flight back to Philadelphia, Sonny practices his homecoming speech. He says he wants to be like his hero, Joe Lewis. Lewis was maybe the greatest heavyweight ever. Someone famously described him as a great fighter and a credit to his race. 
Sonny also wants to tell his black brothers and sisters to never give up and that good things could happen if you let them. But when he gets off the plane, it's just airport workers, photographers and reporters. That hurts him more than anything Patterson threw at him. He thought winning the championship would be a turning point in his life. He thought his past would be forgiven, but people still think he's some kind of devil. After moving to Colorado, Sonny tells a journalist he'd rather be a lamppost in Denver than mayor of Philadelphia. You see, he's funny, but the cops make his life a misery there as well. The sports writers aren't much nicer. Sports Illustrated call him socially primitive, sadly suspicious, and forever the man-child. They joke about his age. Some reckon he's nearer 40 than 30. He can't read the abuse, but others read it to him. And while it stings, it also makes sense. If no one cared he'd been born, why would anyone care about him now? So Sonny gives up trying to be respectable. He's smart enough to know the boxing business needs villains. He'll just be one of those instead. In the rematch in Las Vegas, Sonny makes Patterson look silly. Again, it's another first round win, lasting four seconds longer than the first fight. Sonny seems invincible. He's like the perfect fighting machine. And then along comes this mouthy young kid called Cassius Clay, who turns Sonny into a joke. Clay's the Olympic light heavyweight champion and has been in Sonny's ear since before the rematch against Patterson. Clay gatecrashed his gym and told him he was going to whoop him like his daddy. Sonny gave Clay a clip round the ear in a Vegas casino. Sonny thought Clay was terrified of him, but actually, Clay got inside Sonny's head and made him complacent. And when it comes to boxing, there's nothing more dangerous than complacency. There should be no bigger fight in heavyweight history than Sonny Liston versus Cassius Clay. Just not at the time. Clay is already a member of the radical nation of Islam. He's spending a lot of time with Malcolm X and is about to change his name to Muhammad Ali. If people think Sonny is bad news for race relations, Clay is potentially disastrous. Hardly anyone thinks it will be a contest anyway. There are 46 reporters at ringside and 43 of them have picked Sonny to win. On the night of the fight, 25th of February 1964, the Miami Convention Center is only half full. Sonny injures his shoulder in training. In the first few rounds, Clay, who moves more like a flyweight than a heavyweight, makes the champion look slow, clumsy and old. But at the end of the fourth, Clay tells his trainer he's got something in his eyes and orders him to cut his gloves off. We still don't know what the substance was and how it got into Clay's eyes. Was it perfectly legal? Was it something that had been rubbed into Sonny's injured shoulder and accidentally transferred onto his gloves? Or was it deliberate? When the bell sounds, Clay's trainer has to shove him back in the ring. Clay survives the fifth. By the sixth, he can see clearly again. 
For the next three minutes, Clay dances and hits the champ at will. He's like a violent ballerina. At the end of the round, Sonny tells his trainer he's had enough. His face is covered in welts and one eye is almost closed. His shoulder has seized up and he can't throw a punch with his left hand. Sonny thinks it's better to wave the white flag from a distance than be knocked out. He didn't think that through. Some sports writers think the bully has simply been outbullied and quit. Others suggest the fight was fixed and Sonny sold his crown. They did pick Sonny to win easily, so it makes them feel better about themselves. But if you think their first fight is controversial, their second fight is boxing's equivalent of the assassination of JFK. A proper whodunit. We'll talk about it after this break. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. This is Death of a Sports Star. The Sonny Liston Cassius Clay rematch is scheduled for nine months later in Boston. But when Muhammad Ali, which is now his name, suffers a hernia, it's postponed and moved to a youth centre in Lewiston, Maine, a city of 41,000 people. There are almost as many police officers as fans. Three months earlier, Malcolm X, estranged from Ali and a nation of Islam, had been assassinated. There are rumours Ali might be the target of a revenge hit, and there's Sonny's mob connections to keep in mind. The fight doesn't last long. Ali throws a flashing right hand, and Sonny goes down. You've probably seen the photo. Ali standing over Sonny, cocking his fist and roaring. Get up and fight, sucker. The referee tries to push Ali to a neutral corner, which delays the start of his count. And when Sonny finally makes it back to his feet and they're about to go back at it, someone tells the ref he's been down for 12 seconds. The fight is over. Some think there's nothing mysterious about the outcome. Ali landed with a right to Sonny's head and scrambled his brain. Others think it stinks. The New York Times call it a phantom punch. The most popular conspiracy is the percentage theory. According to the percentage theory, Sonny, who had barely trained, took a dive in exchange for a cut of Ali's future earnings. Later, one of Sonny's team 
claimed the nation of Islam ordered Sonny to throw the fight and threatened to kill him if he didn't. It makes some kind of sense because Ali was the group's most persuasive recruiting tool. Most of the other conspiracy theories wouldn't come to light until after Sonny's death. Sonny is banned by state athletic commissions all over America. So heads to Sweden, where he wins four fights in a row. He's won five in a row, six in a row, seven, eight, nine. He's won 14 in a row and is on the verge of a world title shot when he's knocked out by Leotis Martin, one of Sonny's former sparring partners. Martin suffers a detached retina and never fights again. Sonny does. In 1970, Sonny beats Chuck Wepner in Jersey City. Wepner, who is the inspiration for Rocky Balboa, needs 72 stitches and says, every time he hit me, I could feel something in my face break. Sonny earns $13,000 for the Wepner fight, but $10,000 goes on a bet, the rest to his support team. But Sonny's always had other ways of making money. Since 1966, Sonny's been living a schizophrenic life in Las Vegas. He flits between his family home in Paradise Palms, a posh part of Vegas, the casinos on the Strip, and the black neighborhoods on the city's west side. Out and about in white Vegas, Sonny feels like a zoo animal. If someone asks for his autograph, he hands them a pre-signed card without making eye contact. But he feels comfortable among his own people, not bothered, not judged. Just him. When Sonny isn't mixing with black comedians and musicians, he's hanging about in seedy strip joints, pool rooms and bars. People say he's a fun drunk. He tells stories about the time he whooped Floyd Patterson, buys everyone drinks, and always seems to have a showgirl perched on his knee. When Geraldine is out of town, he takes the party back to Paradise Palms. But it isn't all fun, fun, fun. Sonny is collecting debts for drug gangs and loan sharks with a pistol strapped to his ankle. Even when his comeback is gaining momentum, he's hustling cocaine on the strip. In 1969, he almost gets shot when the police raid a beauty salon. Only, it isn't really a beauty salon. It's more of a drug den. The director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, is apparently obsessed with Sonny. Sonny's file runs to 129 pages. On Christmas Eve 1970, Geraldine and their adopted son leave Las Vegas to visit her family in St. Louis. On Christmas Day, Sonny is seen in a West Side bar, sandwiched between a couple of showgirls. He seemed upbeat. No wonder. Three days later, Sonny picks up a new Cadillac and drives to Hollywood, where he has meetings at Paramount Studios. When he fails to show up to a New Year's Eve party back in Vegas, no one bats an eyelid. After all, there are hundreds of other places Sonny could be, although not dead on his bed, about to become one of Vegas's biggest mysteries. By the time Sonny is finally counted out, he has a lot of enemies. So when the Clark County coroner announces Sonny has died of natural causes, lung congestion and heart failure, people raise eyebrows. When they hear about the coroner finding needle marks on Sonny's arms, 
when they hear about suggestions of heroin, they think something dodgy is going on. Sonny's friends know he was afraid of needles. His trainer says he had to cancel a tour of Africa because he wouldn't have the vaccinations. Sonny's old dentist says there's nothing Sonny feared more than a cold, sharp jab. Geraldine's on the same page. She flatly refuses to believe her husband was involved with drugs at all. The police disagree. For starters, they reckon Sonny was a regular user of heroin. Whether Sonny was a drug user or not, and it seems more likely he was, friends and family don't think he deliberately took his own life. Sonny had big gambling debts and money was tight, but he was fourth in the heavyweight rankings. Yeah, he didn't exactly cover himself in glory against Ali, but plenty of people would have paid to see him lock horns with Joe Fraser. And Sonny had money coming in from elsewhere. He'd become a cult figure. In 67, he appeared on the cover of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album. He was in the film Head starring the Monkees and a television commercial for an airline with Andy Warhol. He also had those meetings at Paramount Studio in Hollywood. People loved their anti-heroes back then, and Sonny fitted the bill. The most mundane explanation of Sonny's death is he'd done a lot of hard living for a man of his age. He just conked out. It often gets forgotten, but he'd been in a car crash a month before and was complaining of chest pains ever since. Geraldine was convinced he'd simply been drinking too much and had a heart attack. But that wasn't enough for some people. Because murder was quickly ruled out, there was never a murder investigation. So rumours spread that the police found Sonny before Geraldine and had left him to rot. Then we find out the FBI were hatching plans to have him set up. So maybe those higher up the drug chain got wind and feared Sonny would talk. More rumours. This time, that Sonny had been collecting money for a loan sharking ring and how he was agitating for a bigger share. It couldn't have been messier. Some thought his old fixer, Ash Resnick, had him bumped off. Resnick was a major figure in the gaming community, who Sonny was convinced had fleeced him out of thousands. A jazz trumpeter turned drug dealer called Robert Chudnik was even implicated. That's not all. What about the money Sonny might have owed for throwing the rematch with Ali? Days before Sonny's death, it was announced that Ali was challenging Fraser for his old title. Both men stood to earn $2.5 million. Years later, Sonny's friends talked about his excitement at the deal. Did it exist? Did Sonny just think it existed? Was he making too much noise about it? There was also talk the mob had promised Sonny money to throw the rematch against Ali and never paid him and that Sonny disobeyed orders to take a dive against Webner. Maybe the mob thought Sonny wasn't worth it anymore. Was he out of control and better off six feet under? At Sonny's funeral, Geraldine threw herself on his casket and cried, Can you tell me what happened to you, Sonny? All these years later, we're still not much the wiser. Something like 800 mourners turned up that day. Ed Sullivan, the talk show host, was there, and the film star Doris Day, and the jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald. Of course, there were boxers, 
trainers, gym rats, croupiers, shoe shiners, showgirls, pimps, pushers, and prostitutes. Sounds touching until you remember Sonny had been lying dead for six days before he was found. Joe Lewis, Sonny's hero and great mate, was a pallbearer, but missed the start. He'd been shooting craps in a casino on the strip. Sonny would understand, he said. Unlike Sonny, Lewis was the right kind of black man. Just before World War II, he'd earned the respect of white America by beating Nazi poster boy Max Schmeling. He'd been nice and humble ever since. When boxing was the biggest sport in the world, every black heavyweight champion symbolized something. Jack Johnson, the first black man to hold the title, was a hero to millions of African-Americans and scared the living daylights out of white people. Muhammad Ali was one of the most important figures of the civil rights movement. But what was Sonny? He certainly wasn't very welcome. But what about that horrible jab of his, that menacing stare, that had people beaten before they stepped through the ropes? Sonny was Mike Tyson long before Tyson was born. In fact, if Sonny had come along 40 years later, he would have been on every schoolboy's bedroom wall. Sonny's gravestone is a simple thing. It reads, Charles Sonny Liston, a man. It sounds like a chiseled shrug. Sonny never asked for the life he had or expected it to be so complicated. He was just getting by as best a man could. And that's the story of Sonny Liston. It was written by Ben Durs and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. Our editor was Charlie Frost. For research, we used Sports Illustrated, ESPN, The Nation, the BBC, as well as The Murder of Sonny Liston, a book written by Shauna Sale, and The Devil and Sonny Liston by Nick Toshes. The music is from our partners at BMG Production Music. This your first episode? We've got others we hope you'll enjoy just as much. There's one about superstar Colby Bryant, American Maverick Payne Stewart, and maybe the most touching of all, doomed cycling champion Marco Pantani. And before I go, I want to tell you about another Crowd Network series called Death of a Rockstar. We love it, and you might too. There's new episodes every Thursday. If you love the story of Sonny Liston, maybe try the one about Otis Redding. Thanks for listening. should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. 
Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run, where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. <laughs> 